it's very different today on what you need to stabilize a pet food than it was 20 or 30 years ago. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Shoveler, and I'm here today with Ben Bowen from Kemen Nutrisurance. Ben, why don't you give yourself a little bit of an introduction to our listeners that might not be familiar with you? Yeah, well, first, Kate, thank you for the invitation to uh, to talk on this uh, podcast. Much appreciated. And uh, a little bit about myself. Um, I've been in the pet food industry for almost 30 years. Um, however, I came at it from a little bit different. That's not what I wanted to do or thought I would be doing. So my background in education is in analytical chemistry, pollution ecology, toxicology. And I was really set up where I thought I would be working for like the EPA. And uh, so I kind of got my start from uh, measuring herbicides in ground soil profile. So, you know, I'm from Iowa, so atrazine and other uh, compounds that you apply to crops, we were looking at uh, the effect as they went through the ground soil. And uh, from there, I worked uh, U.S. Department of Ag, Ag Research Service for four years uh, during school, after school. When I was state grad, I did not get a Ph.D., although I know a little bit about oxidation. So, um, but um, from there, I'm like going, all right, well, a possible government shutdown in 1994. So I better get a real job um, outside of the USDA. So I found a company looking for somebody to do pesticide analysis. And I'm like, oh, OK, I can do that. And that was uh, National Byproducts, which now they're part of Darling International. And so I was uh, in the rendering side for nine years and uh, ran a central laboratory for the company. I did R&D work. I did a lot of FPRF research projects uh, while I was there. And from there, um, moved to Kemen. And I've been at uh, Kemen uh, for almost 22 years. And for the people who know Kemen, Kemen Industries is the uh, primary main part of the company. Kemen Nutrisurance is the pet food division. So I have been in the uh, pet food division for 22 years. And um, 
always associated with our what we call customer laboratory services or CLS. It's an analytical test group. We work with the customer sales team. So we've done a tremendous amount of lipid oxidation over, over that time. And I've dealt with a lot of the lipid oxidation methods for almost 30 years. And um, so it's, it's been a, it's a long history with this topic and this, uh, and this work. Uh, at this point in time, I'm the uh, global technical director as well as our global CLS director. Leading pet food manufacturers, renderers, and ingredient suppliers recognize that Kemen is assurance. Every day they deliver specialized expertise, innovative products, and unrivaled support through the pet food and rendering value chain. From oxidation control and food safety to palatability and nutrition, all the way through a suite of tailored services that allow you to feel supported from start to finish to ensure you're getting the most from Kemen ingredients. That's why every step of the way, Kemen Nutrisurance is your partner in pet food and rendering ingredients. Okay. Very, very interesting. There's a, a lot of other things that uh, I think that I would find extraordinarily fascinating talking to you about other than lipid oxidation methods and pet food. But um, let's focus on pet food today, Ben. All right. Um, so I have a little bit of experience with Kemen as well. So, uh, you know, I would also like to thank you in totality as a company uh, for investing time and mind space in research and innovation as it applies uh, to pet food. And that's really the goal of our Pet Food Science podcast is to disseminate uh, important knowledge and new research and information to the pet food industry so they can continue to innovate. But yours is very, uh, your topic today is a little bit more uh, defined in terms of as we think about looking at lipid oxidation in our pet foods, the types of methods that we apply and how we use those. So would you mind walking through um, and explaining to the listeners what kind of tests are used to measure lipid oxidation in pet food and maybe how those differ in terms of accuracy, precision. Um, also, I imagine one of the other things that they're very uh, going to be interested in is, is cost and rapidity of the, um, of the method as well if they're trying to go uh, really fast in their innovation pipeline just as a few. Sure. Although with that one question, we could talk for hours just on that one question. <laughs> so I'll try to I'll try to simplify and reduce this to some key things, but because it is a big question and a big topic. Um, you know, when you're measuring lipid oxidation, food rancidity, um, there, there's a range of different tests you can utilize in a few different categories. Primary oxidation is typically peroxide values, for example. Uh, that's probably the most common method that's used to assess the quality of incoming raw materials or finished goods. And from there, though, because peroxide values is a good indicator, um, you can't use it on its own a lot of times. You really need to have other measurements in there. So secondary oxidation, or that's where you would measure the aldehydes, ketones, uh, alkanels. There's different compounds. Those are the compounds that actually, if you pick up a pet food or a raw material and you're like, ooh, this smells rancid, it's coming from those. 
Peroxide values, the primary oxidation products, they do not have any flavor or odor. So it's not until those PVs go into that secondary oxidation stage that you get those flavor and odor compounds. And, you know, from there, uh, you know, antioxidant residuals are obviously very useful. You want to make sure you have enough of the antioxidants to stabilize the products. Storage studies are utilized a lot. So um, will the product be stable six months, 12 months, two years down the road? So that's very, very critical. And then there's also what would be termed tertiary oxidation. So I tend to call that hidden oxidation. So that is something that I think uh, is an industry uh, we need to probably focus on a little bit more as we move into the future. So, and I call it hidden oxidation because one, nobody's measuring it and it's kind of a sink. So you have a lot of radicals, they can form hydroperoxides and then they'll form the aldehydes, but they can also go on and they can interact with proteins and that would be a tertiary oxidation. They can form polymers. Uh, polymers are another tertiary product, but as an industry, we're not really measuring any of those products. So, so that's a, um, a free radical sink that's really unaccounted for in our, in our current methodology. And um, are they very predefined methods when we think about looking at peroxide value and then the secondary, secondary oxidation products? Are these universal across the pet food industry? And how available are they across the pet food industry, Ben? Yes, you know, um, peroxide values, for example, while I said it was the most common method utilized, it's probably also the most, the most misunderstood and misutilized method. Um, the, the methods themselves, um, you know, the peroxide value itself, it was really started to be developed in the early 1930s. There were a couple of researchers who were doing a lot of work on different methods, uh, Leah and then Wheeler was the second one. And they went back and forth for years over what was the best PV method. You know, they found various things like, okay, if you change the sample size, that can impact the result. If you change the potassium iodine reaction time, that can impact the results. If you have a hot extraction, cold extractions, if you exclude oxygen, allow oxygen, there are a tremendous number of variables that can impact your final PV result. And as an industry, um, you know, everybody's got different methods and I, we're working, I'm part of the uh, Pet Food Alliance. There's a group of renders, pet food companies who are working to try to work on harmonizing some of the methodology. And I'm a big proponent of that. I think we've, uh, as an industry, we need to do further work on that. Now, it's really nothing against, a lot of the methods we're using in the pet food industry were originally developed for the oilseed industry, for example, AOCS, uh, AOAC. And we've adopted a lot of those methods that were really only designed for fats and oils. And then we're like, okay, well, let's apply those to rendered protein meals. Let's apply those to pet food diets. And 
the original method, which was really works well in fats and oils, when you try to apply those to a lot of the pet food ingredients, that's where a lot of the problems have come in. And there's, there's a lot of issues and things that people aren't taking into account. For example, there is no official fat extraction method. So if you're running the AOCS, AOAC method, you have to get that fat out. And if you're going to get that fat out, well, how do you do that? And you will find that, okay, maybe petroleum ether is an extraction solvent. It's probably the most popular, but there's people out there using chloroform. There's people using co-modifier alcohols. There's people using rotovaps. There's people using nitrogen evaporatory systems. A range of different ways of getting that fat out. And all of those, anytime you, you introduce, you try to do something like that, you impact and you're affecting the results. And, the, and so um, as we go in the future, we need to kind of harmonize and standardize. I don't work on the chemistry like you, Ben, but um, I, I think that standardization can really help, the, help put a, a much more uniform product on the shelf too at the end of the day, mm-hmm. whether that's uniform with claims or uniform in terms of um, the actual product itself. Um, okay, so when we think about those methods then as well, um, and you talked specifically about peroxide value, um, but uh, then the secondary oxidative metabolites, mm-hmm. um, when we think about those, are those really uh, kind of a wide variety as well? Yeah, the uh, secondary products that are formed is one is going to depend on your fatty acid profile of the matrix. So 18,1 oleic is going to produce different fatty or different aldehydes than linoleic or linolenic acid. So it all depends on your fatty acid profile, what you're going to end up getting for the different mix of aldehydes. So there's hundreds of aldehydes that can be formed. Now, granted, you can generally put them in a few different buckets and categories like Hexanel is um, formed primarily from uh, linoleic oxidation. So it's a very popular one that people measure. Um, Propanol formed if you have like 18.3 or EPA or DHA oxidation. So so you can get different fatty acids and um, there are particular ones that you're going to find predominantly that are generated. Now, with, uh, you know, the aldehyde measurements, you'll find that there's no official method out there. So it kind of depends on, it's hard to compare results between different labs or different methods. Uh, Headspace is a very popular method that's utilized. It can measure the, the lighter aldehydes fairly well. So propanol, hexanol. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, liquid solvent extraction method, and that just allows us to measure some of the heavier aldehydes. So we measure 2,4-decadienyl quite a bit in our labs. Now, the advantage for that comes into play where aldehydes are volatile. So uh, you tend to find that if you're trying to measure and quantitate 
propanol, which is coming from, let's say, fish oil or fish meal, it's outgassing almost as fast as it's being formed. So depending on how you're storing samples or the open containers, closed containers, you can get different levels of uh, propanol. Hexanol is more intermediate volatile, but it'll still volatize, especially if it's been heat processed, the product. Where the decadienol is, it's a compound is heavy enough where it's not going to volatize as easy if you're doing headspace. But if you're doing well, like we're doing with the, the liquid solvent extraction, you can, you can quantitate and measure it. And I really like it because it doesn't go anywhere. So that gives me a little bit better idea of what's been going on with that sample as opposed to, okay, is, is everything volatized out? Has this uh, product been stored at higher temperatures where the hexanol is outgassing? It, just a practical question here, Ben. Do all of the aldehydes, um, is, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the consumer experience and, and my own experience, and I'm probably more experienced at smelling rancid oil. Mm-hmm. I um, come from a farm background and I ride horses, and so oils are always around, mm-hmm. um, and that's quite easy. But, but um, I imagine that the only time a consumer would smell if their food was rancid and and they were smelling aldehydes is when they open the bag mm-hmm. and not is that is that a correct assumption um well y- yes and that's a problem and concern as well right so you have that bag where all of the aldehydes have been kind of building up in that headspace And so if you immediately open it up and you put your nose in, you get this big whiff of, oh, here's all of this rancidity. Now, if you leave the bag open for a minute, okay, the the aldehydes are going to dissipate and disappear. But um, yes, obviously, you know, pet food companies, uh, it's one thing for the pet to accept or reject, but the the human buyer of the pet food is actually the most critical oftentimes. So they're buying that bag, they're opening it up and like, oh, this is rancid. And then if they get upset and they don't buy that product ever again, you know, that's uh, that's a big concern and, and challenge. Yeah, and and I would I'd I would ladle on there from a biological standpoint that oxidized oxidized fats um, a, you're not delivering the fatty acids mm-hmm. and the oxidants that you intended to, um, and B, it, it, it increases, increases the oxidant load. And there's enough information to suggest that no, oxidant decrease our ability to mount an immune function. So it's definitely multifold. Oh yeah. Nutritional aspect as well. All the vitamins that'll oxidize. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, um, and you know we should we should have you back. We're talking about lipids today, but we could talk just as much about the antioxidants that they pair with, which would I think be a very very appropriate topic as as well. Um, so kind of moving on then, so you've given us a little bit of an idea about the methods used, some of, um, the limitations, shall we say about those methods and that there's a goal to maybe harmonize these methods and standardize them, uh, across the pet food industry. Um, what, what do you think the major challenges to the standardization of these methods will be for the pet food? industry? 
Um, I just reaching consensus. Um, uh, I often, uh, uh, okay. PVs, my opinion is there is no perfect PV method, for example. So it's just a matter of understanding the limitations on each of the methods and learning to, to live with it and still standardize. You have, I think, a lot of people who are very much like, okay, we have the best or perfect method. And so it's, it's, you have a lot of people really stuck with what they want to do. So, and people really don't like change. So, uh, you know, how quick and how easy can we get, you know, the entire industry to, you know, harmonize and standardize on one particular method? I think, you know, I think that's a challenge. But equally, I think just from the Pet Food Alliance involvement, I think people realize and understand now that uh, that there are issues with the PV method. Um, you know, I've been dealing with it for 30 years. And even as of maybe five or 10 years ago, I really think that people did not understand and fully appreciate how different variables can impact the PV result. And so I think we're getting better as an industry, understanding that, yes, we do need to standardize. And until we do that, uh, we're going to keep having these problems. Um, Almost on a daily basis, you've got, you know, product being rejected, a meal that tested low on a, a render company's PV method. It gets to a pet food company and the pet food company says, no, it's above our limit. And then you go back and forth all the time. And then they send out to third parties, other labs to, okay, well, what are all these labs getting? And you end up finding that you can send to 10 different labs and get 10 very different PV results. So I think that gets frustrating for people and they don't understand why the results going to vary in each lab that tests the sample. So, yeah, it definitely applies to almost all uh, chemical analyses. I think you know, I always tell my students that they can measure it and they can do the science, um, but that doesn't mean that it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, and we also have to be very careful with numbers in the literature because of, um, because of that same variation among labs and among procedures. So we have to be very careful with kind of these absolute values. So Ben, when, when we apply these methods and we think about our product, um, what we're largely applying this to measure is the stability of the fats and oils that we apply. And I, I think we're largely speaking about kibble here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, and so when we think about the different oils that are applied to kibble, are there any oils that you would escalate for companies and say, absolutely, if you have a higher proportion of these types of oils, you really need to be doing your due diligence on oil stability? And would you kind of mind ranking those mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, for the listeners as well? Yeah, uh, you know, lipid oxidation is very much related to the unsaturation level. So when you go from saturated fats like beef tallow, for example, or uh, lamb tallow, 
those are very easy to stabilize. They're, they're very saturated. They don't have a lot of your um, unsaturated fatty acids, which that's where the point occurs and that's where the oxidation occurs. Uh, when you start going to vegetable, well, excuse me, if you then go to uh, like chicken fat, for example, um, it's more of a moderately stabilized or stable uh, fat. And then you go into vegetable oils and then you can go into fish oils. And when you go all the way to the end to having the fish oils, those are extremely unsaturated. And there are a lot of challenges when you try to stabilize those. Uh, if you were to stabilize, you know, a beef tallow, for example, compared to a fish oil, that fish oil is probably 250 times more reactive than that beef tallow. So it, it's much more of a challenge and much more difficult when you try to do that. But you also have to be careful you know, I've been in, like I said, in the industry for 30 years. 30 years ago, the, um, you know, the poultry, for example, poultry fat was very different back then than it is now. Um, back in the day, you could get iodine values, which is a degree of unsaturation, let's say 60 to 70 as uh, a particular typical result. Now we have a lot of these birds are being fed uh, vegetarian diets. So rather than getting animal fat for the fat source for the, for the bird, now they're getting a lot of different vegetable meals. And there's that saying, you are what you eat. And so, I mean, literally I see uh, chicken fats now that have iodine values of over 100, 110, 115. And essentially we've had some, it just looks just like canola oil. And, you know, I've even seen that in farmed fish meal, for example, it's, it's, it's canola oil. So, what used to work and, you know, before 20, 30 years ago as an antioxidant, if you're still trying to use that same antioxidant today, the fat is entirely different. So um, you have to realize that things are going more unsaturated. And as they go on more towards the unsaturated, you have to switch and change your antioxidants that you utilize. So it's uh, it's very, very um difficult and people need to keep that in mind. Plus the diets have changed too. You know, back in the day, I would call a classic pet food diet where you have, oh, chicken byproduct meal in the core, or you have a little corn, and then you coat that outside of that kibble with maybe a beef tallow or a poultry fat. And now we're putting... On the surface, we're putting uh, vegetable oils, we're putting sunflower, we're putting fish oil in the cores rather than that nice saturated protein meal. We're putting a lot of different rices in there, uh, even injecting some vegetable oils into the core. So it's very different today on what you need to stabilize a pet food than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, really, really interesting. And, and for the, for the um, listeners as well, if you're not familiar with the level of unsaturated um, fatty acids that are in an oil, um, both N6 and N3 fatty acids are unsaturated by nature. And um, we include high amounts of vegetable-based proteins in um, chicken, pork, 
uh, and in fish farming and nothing. But if, if you look at ruminants, so you look at lamb and you look at beef, those would be the incoming ones. I guess there's some bison and some, you know, more exotic meats and pet foods as well. But all those that are ruminants, they will have a much uh, higher level of saturated fat. So Ben brings me to a next question is when I'm so really interesting point about the ingredients. Now I'm wondering about the fat that comes in with the meat. So you alluded to the fact, you know, we do have um, meals and a lot of those meals have, um, they carry some inherent fat with them, but not as much as um, fresh meat as an example, which we're seeing at a higher inclusion rate. Are the oils that come in the in, in the ingredient, are they more stable inherently than those added on the outside of kibble? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a great direct answer. It depends. <laughs> it, it, it really depends. Um, the, uh, the core oftentimes can be very, very stable. The core oftentimes can be very, very unstable. So um, it kind of depends on the ingredients that you have and um, what you're putting in combination. So, you know, a a classic uh, challenge is always been like lamb and rice, for example. So if lamb and rice diets are typically difficult to stabilize. Now, you would assume, okay, it's got lamb. That lamb should be very, very stable. It's a saturated fat. In combination with the rice, it makes it kind of a difficult challenge for the core. So oftentimes, I'll want to look at getting uncoated kibble and then getting the coated kibble. And if we're doing a storage study, we'll want to look at, okay, well, where is the oxidation occurring? Is it occurring in the core or is it occurring on the surface? And it's not always readily apparent until you do that sometimes. Interesting. Okay, so so you can actually have different levels of oxidation on the outside of a kibble versus the inside, and it can be due to... Not just the ingredients, but the combination of ingredients mm-hmm. and the chemical reactions. Because I was thinking rice and reducing sugars, and mm-hmm. how, how does that play a role? And it, it's it's very it's very complex. I I totally um, understand that and appreciate it. So two oils. You talked about the animal based oils. You talked about the plant based oils. And I just have to. I I don't even know if you've had any experience with these two, but also oils that contain medium chain triglycerides such as as coconut oil Mm. and i was wondering um if you have if you could so place coconut oil but then also place um black soldier fly larvae oil if you Mm. have that (laughs) level of knowledge oh yes there are certain uh places in the world that uh black soldier flies are being heavily utilized it um so so coconut is very saturated um, I've seen good stability with some of those medium chains just because they're so saturated. Um, black soldier flies, the work, most of the work I've seen, it's more on the saturated end for, for the fats. And um, uh, Asia, Australia in particular, they've done a lot of work there. Uh, you know, I see iodine values of uh, 60 or so for the uh, for the uh, black soldier flies. So 
in all honesty, it's been pretty easy to stabilize. Okay, which, which gives us uh, hope for ingredient development um, as we kind of come along. Um, so wh- one other, maybe one other question. I mean, we, we've talked about how these animals are the fats that they eat, and then those are the, our ingredients. We've talked about the oils um, here. Uh, one part about the oils um, is that the plant oils have other anti-nutritional factors such as polyphenols, which at low doses can be um, quite good. Um, at higher doses can be anti-nutritional factors. Do things like those anti-nutritional factors play any role in the plant-based oils in particular? You know, the, the polyphenols are, uh, oftentimes they have antioxidant effects as well. So it, and I will say it depends. They're typically very low in concentration. Uh, you know, a general oil is coming in with the polyphenols. Um, I, I, overall, I would say not a large impact. Okay. Um, so given all this conversation, um, and uh, full disclosure that that I I take fish oil, maybe not religiously, but I take <laughs> fish oil. Um, and uh, I keep my fish oil capsules in the freezer mainly so I don't have fish burps, um, but also uh, to keep them to keep that stable uh, for as long as as possible. Um, when we're thinking about um, these oils in pet food, and, and this is an out of nowhere question for you, Ben, but why why do we not market the oil separate from the kibble then in as we do for human food and not knowing is fine I, I'm just curious because it seems like we're putting them it on the outside of kibble and we're increasing the propensity for it to be oxidized so why don't we market it differently Oh, so maybe apply the oil uh, separately at the very end before you feed a pet? Yeah. Okay. Um, You know, historically, those oils on the outside of the kibble, um, especially in the old, when I call the classic pet food diet days, they act as a uh, oxygen impermeable membrane. So the core kibble get some of its stability just from those oils on the surface. And those, so you're encapsulating it. Of course, yes. Yep. And yep. so you'll limit the amount of oxygen that actually reaches the inside of that core, which, which affects and impacts the stability. So some of the kibbles, if you didn't have the surface fat on the surface, you'll find that they're less stable than with the fats, even sometimes if those fats are more on the unsaturated end. So... You know, the key is always to get the right antioxidant with the right oil. And it's it's there's a there's an art and a science to it in making sure that everything is matched and you have the appropriate solution for for the issue or for the oil. And because, uh, you know, Kim and we've always seen that where you just can't sell somebody the product and say, OK, you, you go figure it out. So um, yeah. that's really why we have so many services and support is there's just so many variables and so many things to take into account. And um, having that background in history of, of what we do, we, we've we've seen everything and we can help any customer do about anything. 
Right. So on that note, with your last answer, do you want to comment on maybe how, I mean, you don't have to go through the exhaustive list of this oil should match with this antioxidant, but could you give the listeners an idea about the considerations for the selection of the antioxidant when you're, when, when you already know which oil that you're going to use in your formulation and how you're going to apply it? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Traditionally, um, we sell a product called Naturox. It's tocopherols, and it's high delta tocopherol. It works very well in the saturated fats and oils. So when I mentioned earlier that, okay, Naturox, it worked great 30 years ago. It still works great in many situations. But if you've changed your diet and now you're putting a lot of grains in, you're putting a lot of sunflower oil, fish oil on the surface, your antioxidants really need to change as well. So that's where we get into a line, uh, I would call, uh, for the mid-saturated that you're getting into the more botanicals. Uh, you know, that could include spearmint, and it can include rosemary, it can include green tea, along with the tocopherols. And that's kind of what we're using in that mid-range. And then you can get into really unsaturated, if you're talking fish oil, for example. Um, from there, we're removing all of the tocopherols because at that point, the tocopherols are not that effective in some of these really unsaturated fish oils. Um, and then from there, we're trying to do mostly rosemary. Um, that's a, a general, uh, you know, way of looking at it. And then in the sur or in the core, you know, you have to look at it as well. Um, tocopherols work very well. But again, if you're getting into some of the different grains, uh, that's where if we go to some more of the botanicals with the spearmint and the green teas, um, those are adding value as well. And we're, you know, looking and always working on adding more antioxidant molecules to the mix as well. So, um, We've got um, olive extract, for example. I think that's going to be a really good uh, core stabilization antioxidant as we move forward. So, Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I can tell you when I was in Italy, uh, a bunch of uh, um, mm -hmm. they were truffle raising dogs um, and um, my husband can speak Italian. So the first thing that they said was if she says that they don't need olive oil, we won't talk to her. Um, <laughs> so the Italians appreciate olive oil and olives in, in, in general. Um, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really like Italian food too. So that, that works out really well. Um, so bringing all these, these uh, points together, Ben, um, what, what do you think the future holds for oils and oil stability as we apply it to pet food? And we've talked a lot about kibble, um, but uh, you might also want to comment on on fresh, which seems to be a, a growing market as well. Mm, okay. Yes. Um you know, we've really had a couple shifts over the years. So one is we're going more unsaturated with the, the diets, but then we're also expecting and wanting longer shelf life. So um, 20 years ago, 
most people wanted 12 months and or nine months and that was okay you know now we have it was 15 then it was 18 and now we're at 24 months and so obviously trying to achieve those really long shelf lives with increased degree of unsaturation you know that is that is a challenge and um, there's uh, there's a lot of work and effort that goes into that. So, um, but it also depends what antioxidant you want to use too. And do you need natural, or can you use synthetic? Um, you know, I always say, and it's true. You know, synthetics are are better antioxidants in most of the time. However, customer perception, they're not natural. You have, you know, you know, different countries banning certain uh, antioxidants. So there's a lot of push to get people to go more towards the natural, which which makes sense. But, um, you know, natural antioxidants are a little more of a challenge. You have to use them correctly, correct dosage, correct location. Um, some of them you don't want to overapply them. So with certain antioxidants, if it's if you got good stability now, and if you double the the rate, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get even better stability uh, <laughs> with the double the rate. It doesn't work that way all the time. Yeah. So, so you know, as as we keep working on trying to get the longer shelf life, um, uh, it's just going to take a changing of an approach on what people are using and how they're using the antioxidants. And, you know, we're finding that um, longer shelf life will also come from stabilization of the raw materials. So, right. So all of those products coming in, uh, you want to work and you want to focus on your raw material quality, especially if you're trying to achieve a super extended shelf life on the finished pet food diet. And, you know, the fresh is that's different as well. And then you even have some of the pouch systems and you have you have a lot of different systems coming in, 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 into the mix. So, you know, that's where especially on the raw, of course, microbial is a big risk there, um, but you can still have oxidation that are occurring. So that's where I think you really need to really closely look at, okay, a food uh, preservation product. There's different acid acids that can have some microbial control effects in combination with antioxidants. Uh, that's really where you need to have some of those combinations, uh, especially in the, that fresh. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it, most importantly, when companies are changing ingredients or developing a new product with a either new ingredients or a new combination of ingredients, uh, the time spent up front looking at shelf stability and making sure that you've got this right has uh, been very impressed upon me today. Mm. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for that, Ben. It's time for our famous three. So one um, thing that I, I do like to ask, especially people who have been in the industry for, um, uh, you know, have a little bit of experience at least, um, is 
Could you provide any advice to, uh, for example, um, uh, anyone who wants to contribute to the pet food industry, but uh, you yourself, I, I deal with a lot of people who, who want to be hands-on pet people, um, and you're a chemist, mm-hmm. uh, so I think you have a little bit of a different perspective. So what would your advice be for incoming professionals? Mm. Well, if, if I look at it uh, for somebody coming in, let's say from a science field uh, or, you know, chemistry, whatever the case may be, I will say that lipid oxidation I find very, very fascinating because there's a lot of um, uh, industries and areas you can go in where everything's solved or, you know, equations have been developed or there's really nothing new that you can do. Um, I'm always fascinated by what doesn't work and then trying to understand why. And so anybody coming in, the number one thing is be curious, ask why. So if something fails, just don't say, okay, it failed. Uh, Okay, I'm done. Or it's too complicated. There's a lot to be learned in why something didn't work. And, um, you know, I can say for lipid oxidation in general, I think, although at this point in time, maybe we think that we really understand what's going on and we have a great in-depth knowledge. My viewpoint is no, there's a tremendous amount that we don't know. And there's a tremendous amount that we still need to learn. I mean, I haven't even gone into, there's just a range of things like, uh, uh, you know, shelf life, for example. It's typically an Arrhenius equation. It talks about, okay, reaction rates double for every 10 degrees change in temperature. Well, I can tell you that the Arrhenius equation doesn't always apply across the full temperature range. So you can get reactions that just don't fit. And okay, they don't fit. Well, why? Um, we don't really have a great answer for that in, in some temperature ranges. So um, if I was coming in, um, I think there's a lot of value that somebody could bring into the industry and, and help solve some of these questions. Yeah, I always I always use the uh, the Einstein quote, something to the effect of fall in fall in love with the problem, mm. um, and and not the solution. So when you're trying to get to consensus, you should remind everybody to stop uh, voting for their solution and really <laughs> dig into that problem. I think uh, you might uh, get a little bit closer to consensus. So. I think, you know, with that advice uh, for young professionals coming in, you also, uh, last but not least, and and you kind of hit on it here, is those conditions under which all these reactions occur. And it's um, not surprising to anyone who's listening that we are experiencing a greater and more volatile um, climate, which means um, the hots are hotter, the colds are colder, the wets are wetter, the dries mm. are drier. Um, how does climate change um, impact how you see this part of the industry going forward? Um, it's it's obviously going to uh going to have an impact. Um, uh, you know, when you look at um, uh, meals, for example, uh, animal protein meals, okay, they're, they're often produced, but then stored outside. So they're 
you know, depending on the temperature, uh, that can impact the stability of the meals and probably counter to a lot of people's understanding. Um, if you look at PVs uh, in a chicken meal, for example, and you look at what the average PV level is on chicken meal across a calendar year, you're going to see an interesting thing. You're going to see that the lowest PVs are occurring during the hottest months. Equally, the highest PVs are always during the coldest months. So that's where I was talking about the Arrhenius equation and not always fitting and not always working. Now, there's some other things going on in there for that. But, you know, interesting thing where as it gets colder, um, so as you start getting wider temperature swings, you know, I think we risk, um, we definitely risk in the winter months, for example, having raw material supplies that do not meet the needs or the requirements of the pet food industry. So, yeah. Interesting. Not the answer I expected, Ben. Those are always my favorite. So, Ben, uh, in the event that any of the listeners want to get a hold of you and the team at Kemen, uh, how can they go about doing that to help them solve their problems around lipid oxidation? Yeah. Um, you know, you can definitely reach out to me, um, uh, ben.bowen at kemen.com. And uh, if I can't answer your question or if it's meant for somebody else, I'd be happy to forward that on to uh, to uh, someone else in the company who can help you better than I can. Fantastic, Ben. Well, I encourage listeners. Um, I hope that we've really solidified the need to look at lipid oxidation in your products and that Kemen has the tools and technologies to help you deliver outstanding products to the marketplace. Um, well, this has been outstanding. Thank you very much uh, for all of your time. And also, thank you for doing this uh, right before the holiday season. Um, I know that it's a very busy time. Uh, so thank you for making time for us, too. Thank you very much. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.